Okay, good evening, everybody. It is good to see you. Welcome back. If you do not have a handout yet, hope you'll get one of these. This is week three of our study, the Attributes of God. They're on the podiums in the back. If you missed the, any of the last two weeks and you want to catch up, the audio is on Facebook, on our Facebook page, and on our church website. If you want the handouts to go with them, there's a few copies left of week one and week two on these front seats right here. So feel free to get one of those and hope that'll help you as you go through the study. But again, this is week three. We are still talking about the attributes, the characteristics of God. And last week was one of those that caused my mind to hurt a little bit. I don't know about you as we were, as we were thinking about these attributes of God that are so different than anything that we can experience. So we think about God's independence and not needing anything. Well, tonight we come to the issue of God's relationship to time. And this one makes my mind hurt about as much as the one last week does as well. And it's, it's exciting, though, because this should lead us to what we were just singing about in our opening singing time, that time is in his hands, and this should lead us to all and to worship. And so I want to remind us, kind of, for me, the key verse of why we're doing this study, why we're taking 20-plus weeks out of this upcoming Wednesday nights this year to talk about the attributes, the characteristics of God. And there on the front page of your handout is the key verse for the whole study. That's Colossians 1, 9 and 10, Paul's prayer for the people there in Colossae. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And that's what we want to do. We want to be increasing the knowledge of God. Friends, like we talked about a few, a few weeks ago when we started this study, we're going to be learning about God for all eternity. His greatness is unsearchable. His greatness is so much that we're never going to come to a day that we've fully understood God. For all eternity, we'll still be learning how amazing and a great He really is. And with that in mind, tonight we're going to try to increase in our knowledge of God relating to God's relationship to time. The title tonight is God is Eternal. One verse you see that here is Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. Have you not known... Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So you see right there even the word everlasting again, this idea that God is no beginning, no end. He's always existed and always will exist. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. He is the, if we talked about last week, he's the uncaused cause of everything. God has no beginning, yet he causes everything that we experience on that. And again, his understanding is unsearchable. We have quite a task before us as we seek to mine the depths of who God is. So turn the page, quick review, just to make sure we're all on the same page, so to speak, with where we're going. I've given you this definition. The last week I planned to give you the definition, but just want to make sure, again, we're all on the same page of what we're talking about in this study. What is an attribute of God? And what we're coming to in an attribute of God, an attribute is those qualities or characteristics of the divine being by virtue of which he is distinguished from all created beings, and without which he would not be worthy of the worship and service of man. Now, we unpacked that definition two weeks ago. So if you missed that and want to go deeper into that understanding, again, the audio is online or the handouts up here. We're talking about the characteristics of God, the characteristics by virtue of which he is distinguished from us. Now, if you remember, we talked about there's two categories of attributes. There are attributes that are incommunicable, that he does not share with us. That was last week. We talked about his, two weeks ago, his unity. Last we talked about his independence. And we'll get to attributes eventually that are communicable that he shares with us in part. God is love, we can show love. God is mercy, we can show mercy. God is just, we can fight for justice. We're going to talk more about those as we go along. Now, the two we've seen so far are attributes that God does not share in part with us. This is totally different from us. And these boggle our minds. The unity of God. This is that God was not divided into parts. Remember, every attribute of God is completely true of all of God all of the time. And so God's attributes don't fight. His mercy and his justice aren't at war to see who's going to win. 
God is fully, always, all the time just. God is fully, all the time, always loving. God is fully, all the time gracious. God is fully, all the time wrathful. He has all the attributes, all the time fully God. He is unity, unified in all of that. Then last week we talked about God's independence, that God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything. God has no needs. God did not make the world because he was lonely. We kind of try to debunk that kind of modern heresy. That God doesn't need anything. He wouldn't be God if he needed anything. We talked last week about he owns everything. We're just simply stewards, but yet we can bring him joy. And I hope you've thought some about the verse we talked about last week, Zephaniah 3, that the Lord rejoice over you is singing. That even in the bigness of God, that he needs nothing. He takes joy in his people, <clears throat> and he rejoices over them. And I hope you've experienced that this week. So tonight we come to the third attribute of God, at least in the order I'm working through them. Again, an attribute of God that is incommunicable. He does not share with us, and that is God is eternal. God is eternal. Now, what are we talking about with eternal? Well, eternal is technically an adjective. Eternal means possessing of eternity. I'll probably end up using the noun and adjective form simultaneously tonight. I'll go between eternity, eternal, back and forth. So what do we mean by that? I've given you some, some terms, some synonyms for eternal. Lasting forever, to always exist, to have no beginning or end, to be ceaseless. Or another one not on your list, some people talk about it being perpetual, always happening on that. And if you see in these words, there's limitations of our language. We start trying to describe this attribute of God, we really have a hard time with it. Because our language falls really short to try to describe something in terms of being outside of time, having no beginning, no end on that. And so with that limitation, here's some definitions of what we mean by the fact that God is eternal or he possesses eternity. Probably my favorite definition is Wayne Grudem. You'll probably see him quoted every week because, well, he's one of my favorite theologians and I love what he does with attributes of God. So you'll probably get to hear from Wayne Grudem most every week. But here's Wayne Grudem's definition of the eternity of God. God has no beginning, no end, no succession of moments in his own being, and he sees all time equally vividly, yet God sees and acts in time. There's a lot to take in in that, and we're going to digest that one and take it apart here in just a few minutes. But God has no beginning or end. God has no succession of moments in his being. God sees all time equally vividly, yet God sees and acts in time. And so we'll talk more about that. But there's a different definition from Danny Aiken, who's the president of Southeastern Baptist Seminary up in Wake Forest, North Carolina. And he adds something to this that I think a lot of times our definitions miss on this. And here's his definition. Eternity is not simply the negation of time with reference to God, but the arena of his full, majestic, unimaginably rich and overflowing life is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, for me, the key word in that is the word arena. So I don't know about you. Think about the biggest arena or venue you've gone to. Now, for me, having just moved here in the last few months from the Auburn area, the biggest arena I typically went to was Jordan-Hare Stadium. So Alabama fans, sorry, I'm... That the, my context is, is, is Auburn. But Jordan-Hare Stadium, 86,000 people would pack into that one place, into this one arena to gather around something. And that was to hopefully see Auburn do well. But it was, Auburn was not unchangeable. It was very changeable. It might be awful. But there were really good times that we had there. And it's, it's the arena which people came together to try to see what would happen on that field. Think about other arenas where people gather. Occasionally, I go every few years to the Southern Baptist Convention, and there'll be like 5,000 pastors who will gather together in a big arena, a big venue. It takes us three days of meetings to try to work through the business of this partnership of Southern Baptist churches, these 40,000 churches. It takes three days of a big arena to try to display and get done all that needs to be done. So with that in view, what arena would be big enough to show God's greatness? And that arena is eternity. It literally takes all eternity for the greatness of God 
to be seen here. Again, Danny Aiken's definition, eternity is not simply the negation of time with reference to God. So we're experienced, not just God's outside of time, that's true, but it's bigger. It's eternity, God being eternal, is the arena of his full, majestic, unimaginably rich, and overflowing life as a Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It takes literally all eternity for the greatness of God to be seen. Now, there's other terms that you'll sometimes see used or read used to describe this attribute. Sometimes it's called God's infinity. Well, it's not my favorite term for, for how to describe this attribute of God. Technically, infinity means God is unlimited. He's immeasurably great. Well, that's true. There's nothing not true about that. But infinity is not the word you find in the scriptures. You find the word eternal or everlasting more in the scriptures. But also, infinity is kind of broad. God is infinite in his power. He's infinite in his presence. He's infinite in relation to time. So infinity is so broad, there's a lot of sub-attributes. So I typically, it's not the one I typically use the most. Another term people use is God's timelessness. But that's true. God is outside of time. He doesn't, he's not bound by time. But that misses what Danny Aiken was getting at. The eternity is not just he's timeless. There's something much bigger in view here, and that is the greatness of God being displayed for all eternity. And then some people have even tried to do this one, which is not the way we normally talk. God is unto perpetuity. You know, well, if you're really a finance person and like the term perpetuity, you might like that one. If you're a physicist and wants to talk about perpetual motion, you know, you might enjoy that definition. But that's not the one we, I typically use as well. Perpetuity, state of being perpetual, no end. My preference is simply what we call it here, that God is eternal. No beginning, no end, no succession of moments, sees everything equally vivid. The important thing in this, or those, the next thing on your handout there, that God's relationship to time is very, very different than ours. And I probably should put out 10 more varies right there, okay? God's relationship to time is very, 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 very different than ours and anything we can experience. The limitations of time on us do not apply to God. Now, I don't know if you ever feel limited by time. I have my watch. I'm always looking at clocks. There's a clock hanging right above in the back to make sure I don't go over on Sundays and Wednesdays, right? There's time that's always binding us. You know, we're, we're rushing on the way to church. Oh, we're going to be late this morning. We're rushing on the way to work. Time constraints. Oh, if I only had a few more hours in the day. All these things we typically say because we're bound by time. We're limited by time. But God is in no way limited by time as we are. It's an incommunicable attribute of God. Now, what does that mean? Let's kind of take apart the implications of this and see if we can try to get our minds around this thing that's so different in our experience. Number one there on the second page of your handout, what does this mean? Number one, it means that God has no beginning and no end. This is the creator preceding the creation. God never began to be. God just always was. God did not start somewhere. God just is. We see this in several places in the scripture. First in the Old Testament. We already looked at Exodus 3.14 last week, but it has bearing here in one of the names of God. Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now we talked last week about how the name I am communicated God's independence. God doesn't need anything. He just is. But the I am also communicates the idea of God's relationship to time. He just is. He always has been I am. He is I am. Now he, he, the future will be I am. He just, God just is. He's always been there and God is always I am in that. Next is Deuteronomy 33.27. This is the context says this is Moses' final blessing to Israel before he dies. People are obviously nervous, concerned, what's going to happen. So what does he point them to? What does Moses anchor people in to give them security in the transition that's coming up for them? It's in this attribute of God. Deuteronomy 33, 27. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And friends, what an incredible image. If you're in a trial right now, if you're in a place of uncertainty, 
what Moses is speaking to the people of Israel applies to you here as well. The eternal God is your dwelling place. Your anchor, your hope is the fact that whatever trial and time you find yourself in now, God is not bound by that. He's bigger than that. He is your dwelling place. He was your dwelling place when you were born. He's your dwelling place till the day you die. And if you're in Christ, he's your dwelling place forever and ever and ever. This is an anchor for us in whatever we're going through. The everlasting arms are holding us there. Now, how about Psalm 90? This is just a beautiful passage. Again, similar imagery. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you have formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Again, before creation was, God was there. Like I mentioned earlier, he was the uncaused cause of everything. One translator says you could translate this instead of everlasting. You could say from vanishing point to vanishing point, you are God. From as far back as you can see to as far as you could possibly see, you are God. When the horizon, you think about it at the beach, when you look out and the ocean just kind of vanishes in the distance. As far back as any person could ever see any direction, there's just God. I guess I can infer that and further forward than any of that, that God goes on forever. He is our dwelling place in all generations from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. A.W. Tozer, who's incredibly quotable on things like this, was trying to describe this particular verse of Psalm 90, and here's how he describes it. Man looks back as far as he can, then turns around and looks forward as far as he can, until human thought falls exhausted and human eyes can no longer see. Friends, when we try to think about the timelessness of God, that God is eternal, we can strain back as far as our minds can strain to comprehend. We can look forward as far as our minds can strain to comprehend, and we come up with this. We come up exhausted our human eyes can no longer see, and God was still there and still was going as far back as he can. Well, some more images as well for us. Psalm 102, starting in verse 24 through 28. Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days. You whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same And your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. So again, here on that second line, of old you laid the foundation of the earth. Of old, before the world was made, God already was there. And he laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens, everything we see is the work of his hands. All this stuff perishes, but God will remain. He is eternal. You are the same. Your years have no end. And what is the result of this again? You, the children of your servants shall dwell secure. Friends, there never was a time when God was not there, and there never will be a time when God is not there. God has always been and always will be. Job says a similar thing. Job 36, 26. Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. Why is it unsearchable? Because there is no limit to it. God is eternal. He has no beginning no end. And that was just in the Old Testament so far. Again, let me, it's not on your handout, but I want to read you a quote from Tozer that I found. He's trying to describe the language to describe God's eternity. And he said this, the Old Testament Hebrew has exhausted itself, has wrung its language as you wring a towel to get the last drop of meaning out of it. Say that God is forever and ever, endlessly, unto perpetuity, the world without end. Again, he gives you the image of if you're trying to get water out of a towel, and you squeeze and you squeeze and you squeeze until the last drop comes out. Our language is so inadequate to describe God. We're squeezing every word we can find, every description we can find, to try to get that one drop more drop and try to grasp how great God is, and we still come up short because God is so big and so powerful in this. The New Testament carries on this language. 
We looked at this some weeks ago as we were working through John. This is, I think, actually 16 Sundays ago. But John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And we're not going to talk much about that because we've talked about it on Sunday mornings. But when time began, when God created the world, Jesus was already there. John eight fifty seven to 58. Now, if you like tenses of English language, this one messes with our minds some here. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, true you, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. You notice the tense there, before Abraham was, past tense, I am, present tense. Jesus' relation to time is so different than ours. They can say, before Abraham was even created, I am present. You know, if we were trying to use human language, we would put there a past tense. Before Abraham was, I already was. But he doesn't say that. He says, before Abraham was, I am, present tense, there. On that one, and if you have trouble sleeping at night, you can brainstorm on that one a little bit. Revelation chapter 1, verse 8 as well. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. As you know, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet were Alpha and Omega. He's saying, from the very beginning to the very end, I am always there. I'm the beginning of history. I'm the goal of history. I am always there. I have no beginning, no end is the meaning of that. So God has no beginning or end. That's the first part of this meaning God is eternal. But the second part of God being eternal has to do with how we relate to time, and that is that time began at creation. So this is where my mind starts to hurt a good bit, as if the other wasn't enough to make us ponder. Time began at creation. Before God made the universe, there was no time. Again, let me quote A.W. Tozer, who's really quotable here. But before the beginning, there wasn't any beginning. There wasn't any before you can try to get your mind around that. But before the beginning, there wasn't any beginning. There wasn't any before on this. Before God made the universe, there was no time. And we mentioned this last week during our discussion time once we broke up into groups. Last week in talking about God's independence, I mentioned like 700 trillion years ago, God didn't need anything. But I think as Greg and Cecilia point out in the discussion of that, there really wasn't a 700 trillion years ago because there was no time back then. So time began at creation. There was no time, no succession of moments prior to Creation. Now, where do we see this in Scripture? Well, in, inference a little bit, but some of it's right there for us. Genesis chapter 1. I've, <coughs> excuse me, I've quoted three different verses for us. Genesis 1, 1, 1, 5, and 1, 14. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 5. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. There was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for season and for days and for years. Okay, so... Day one, day one of creation here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He then creates the light and darkness. He creates day and night. What we know as succession of time, day, night, began when God spoke the world into being. There was no pattern of succession of days prior to creation here. Again, everything was created at this point. When God talks about the last part of verse 14, there for signs and seasons, days and years, signs and seasons, days and years were part of Creation. There was no seasons, no, no signs, no days prior to God creating the world. One church historian says if you go back to the earliest times of Christians, they understood that time began at creation. Where else do we see this? John chapter 1, verse 3. Some things, except for time, were made through him. No. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. So, friends, before God created the world, there was no such thing as gravity. Before God made the world, there was no such thing as physics and the laws of physics. Before God made the world, there was no time. Everything came about when God created the world in six days. All things, including time, were made through him. 
Likewise, Acts 17, 24, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth. So he made the world and everything in it came from that. God created the world with time, not in time. So there was not a time when God started to create the world. That's when time began. He created a world, a universe, an existence for all things with time in it. He didn't create it in a particular period of time, if that makes sense. So then Danny Aiken says this. So what was the eternal God doing before he made the world? It's a great question. So it goes back to some of Augustine's writings. On Augustine's reading, there was no such before. There was no then, then. Eternity is the dimension of God's own life. It has no beginning and no end. No parameters or margins or boundaries outside of God himself. On the other hand, time was willed and created by God as a reality distinct from himself. So, got that? (laughs) Turn the page, number three here. That means that God is outside of time. Okay, so this, this brings us to the question we have to define first. Of, we talk, we've been talking about time, but friends, what is time? Can anyone give me a definition of time? A measured part of eternity, okay. What else? How, how else would you define time? It's hard to define, isn't it? We experience it, but how do we define it? It's a measured part of eternity, yeah, it's one part of it. What else? Succession of moments? What's that? Any others? Or something back there? It's hard to define, isn't it? Uh, again, going back to, to St. Augustine, one of the early theologians of the church back from around 300 or so A.D., Augustine said that time is when the past becomes present and the present becomes future. <laughs> okay. I mean, how do you define time? We experience it. The best I can come up with is time is a succession of moments. That's why you have past, present, future, but it's a succession <coughs> of moments. God in his being has no succession of moments because he was outside of time. Time is something God created with the world, so that means before he created the world, there was no time as we know it, no past becoming present, present becoming future. Again, let me quote A.W. Tozer, who's so quotable here. He says, God has no past. Now, I want you to hear that. And I want you to shake your head hard here. Because this is an idea that the old church fathers need, but that we, their children, don't seem to care much about. God has no past. You have a past. It isn't really very long, although you may wish it wasn't so long. But God has no past and no future. Why does not God have a past or a future? Because past and future are creature words. And they have to do with time. They have to do with the flowing motion of time. But God is not riding on the bosom of time. Time is a little mark across the bosom of eternity. And God sits above time, dwelling in eternity from everlasting to everlasting. Thou art God. So time is something that God uses. He is not bound by it. He is not even, in his being, he doesn't even experience time as we do. So then the question comes up, well, it's not on your hand up, but what about Hebrews thirteen eight? That may be an objection. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what do you do with that if God doesn't have time in his being? Well, who's yesterday, today, and forever is Hebrews 13 talking about? Ours. That in our past, in our present, our future, in world history, God is always the same. He's the same to Israel as he is to us today. You know, God is unchanging. This is speaking of our relationship to God, not of God and his nature himself. So God is outside of time. He does not have a succession of moments in his being. Number four, we're not going to go deep into tonight because we're getting to this in a few weeks. Time does not change God. The big term for this is immutability. We're getting this on June 14th. It's a whole attribute of God and just hang on to that when we're coming back to that. But God, if God does not change, that means he doesn't grow in his knowledge. God's not smarter now than he was when he made the world. God's not smarter now than he was before there was a before. You know, 
God is always the same. He's never increased in knowledge. He's never increased in power. God is always fully God all the time. And even when there wasn't time, he was fully God. Time does not change him in any ways. Again, this is incommunicable. Time certainly changes us, doesn't it? Our hair color changes. Our weight changes. Our, our clothing styles change. Lots of things change in us. God in no way changes here. He is unchangeable. We'll talk more about what that means here in a few weeks. Number five, though, that means God sees all time equally vividly. God sees all things past, present, and future equally vividly. Friends, we don't do that. What did you have for dinner on May 5th? Can you even tell me what you had for dinner on May 5th? Okay, I, there's a few of you who are going <laughs> to know that. Must have, like, incredible memories. But most of us can't. Can many of you tell me what I preached on on April 2nd? <laughs> we, we, we don't remember details, even in the last month. Can anyone tell me what you're going to be doing on June 13th? I mean, our memories are so finite and so limited. We can barely articulate what we ate for dinner three weeks ago. We can barely talk about what we heard two months ago. We can't tell you with any certainty what's going to happen in a month. We cannot see all time equally, but God is so different than us. Nothing fades in God's sight. He sees everything all the time equally. Several scriptures show this. Psalm chapter 90, verse 4. Beautiful passage here. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. A thousand years are but as yesterday. Now this is, if you remember back to our last day, the, the, how to understand the Bible, this is figurative language. This doesn't mean that in a thousand and one years God forgets stuff. It's imagery for Eternity, imagery for a really, really long, indefinite period of time. A thousand years, eternity in your sight, God, is but as yesterday when it is past. And then Peter takes this, this imagery and kind of flips it a little bit and adds to it. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years are as one day. God sees all things equally vivid. What happened a thousand years ago, God sees vividly today. And what we're going through today in God's mind is the same as if it took a thousand years to transpire. Your 10, 20 minute commute to Gateway tonight in God's mind could have been the same as if it had been a thousand year commute. But what happened to you 20 years ago in God's mind is just as clear as if it had happened 30 seconds ago. That's his, he sees all time, past, present, and future equally vivid. That takes us then to Isaiah chapter 46. Now the context of this, I love this passage. God is promising to deliver his people from their captivity. He's going to use Cyrus, a pagan ruler, to do that. And the people are pretty ticked off that God's going to use a pagan to do this work of his. And so God speaks to them in this, to the prophet, and, he's told, and the people are told this. Remember the former things of old. <coughs> Excuse me. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And catch this phrase. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. You hear that phrase again? God sees time so equally vividly, he even plans out what's going to happen. God's in control of all things. He says, I'm declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, the things are not even yet done. And it's so sure. He says, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. Now, there's some fun implications of this. A day never ends to God. God is always experiencing it. If God sees all time equally vividly, it's not like he forgets stuff on that. So think about this. The praises you're going to sing to the Lord this coming Sunday morning, God already heard 3,000 years ago. What you're going to sing to the Lord in corporate praise Sunday morning, God already was enjoying 3,000 years ago. Because he sees all time 
equally vivid. A day never ends to God. He always experiences, which means that to God, time never goes too slow and time never goes too fast. He's the Lord of it all. We just saw in the Isaiah text, he declares the end from the beginning. His purposes shall stand. Friends, God's never in heaven going like, man, I just wish they would speed up down there and get that done. Time never is dragging too slow. You talk, like if you talk to my kids and they're waiting for their birthday, Daddy, how long to my birthday when I can get that toy? Like it drags on for, it seems like an eternity to them. How many more days till I get that? Like it seems to go too slow. Things never move too slow for God. Nor do things ever move too fast. You have this great trip, this great time. You're out on a date with your wife. You get away for a few days. It seems to fly by. You're going, man, I wish it was longer. God's never up in heaven being like, man, I wish that was longer. Man, I wish that was shorter. Time is never too fast or too slow for God. God sees all time equally vividly. Now let's kind of balance all that out a little bit in relation to us. So God is outside of time. But number six, God acts in time in this. Remember, God is the Lord over time, so he acts in it for his purposes. Herman Bavink was a Dutch Reformed theologian. Here's how he describes it. He, God, never becomes subject to time, measure, or number. He remains eternal, and he inhabits eternity. But he uses time as a means for the manifestation of his eternal thoughts and excellencies. He makes time subservient to eternity and thereby proves himself to be the king of the ages. Catch that. He uses time as a means. Again, time is a tool in God's hand. He's not bound by it, but he uses it for the manifestation of his eternal thoughts and excellencies. He makes time subservient to eternity. So picture this. Eternity is greater. Time is a servant of God's purposes in eternity. He makes time subservient to eternity and thereby proves himself to be the king of the ages. Where do you see this in Scripture of God acting in time? Well, several places. Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So again, the whole Bible is showing us God acts in time, but here the Father has set a time. God who is outside of time, who is not bound by time, who doesn't have succession of moments in his core being, has chosen a time in our experience of human history for when Christ will return. Acts 1-7, he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons the Father has fixed by his authority. The Father has fixed times and seasons. Again, he times as a servant in God's hands. He's fixed certain times for things to happen. And I love Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. When the fullness of time came, God had a plan in world history. World history is marching to accomplish his ends. Time is a tool in the hands of the Almighty. Time is a servant of the Almighty for his purposes to accomplish. And so when the fullness of time had come, when God had chosen the time, Christ came in this. So God, though he's outside of time, acts in time. And time is his servant, not something that he is bound to. Now to counter that, then, for us, God is timeless. Friends, we will always exist in time. There's some, some, some old hymns that talked about when time is no more. That may sound really cool in some of the old hymns, but there's no indication in the Bible that's actually a reality. We will never be outside of time. That's God's existence, not ours. Nothing in Scripture indicates we will ever transcend time. When we talk about us living eternally, we mean something very different than when we say God is eternal. When we say God is eternal, God has no beginning, no end. God is not bound by time. He's outside of time. When we live eternally, it's saying that forever, not past tense, but forward for us, we will experience God. We will be in his presence with no end. But we're still in that going through a succession of moments. We will still always be part of the creation. 
Where do you see this? Well, Revelation chapter 4, verse 10. Now, granted, this is talking about the elders in this. But in this image of Revelation 4, the elders, they cast their crowns before the throne. So let's draw an inference from this. If they're casting their crowns before the throne, that means at one moment in time they have their crowns. Another moment in time their hands are empty and there's no more crown because it's now before the throne. There's a succession of time to where something has changed in their experience. Likewise, in Revelation chapter 14, verse 3, they were singing a new song before the throne. Friends, that means that when we get to heaven, we're not going to start hearing, I can sing of your love forever stuck on infinite repeat for all eternity. We're not going to be singing the same verse over and over and over for all eternity. There will be a new song. That means that implication that there's a time we're singing one song, there's another time, a succession of moments, we're singing a different song. There's going to be experience of time for us in eternity. Eternity for us will still be a succession of moments in that. And then the last implication of this is we desperately need God. Friends, we are slaves to time. Like I mentioned earlier, we are looking at our watches all the time. We're looking at the clocks. We are bound to function in a world of time. God is not. Time is in his hands. He is the one who uses time for his purposes. We are bound by time in this. We are limited. God is not. Again, let me quote from A.W. Tozer. It says, you need God, for God is your eternity. You need God, for God is your tomorrow. You need Jesus Christ, for Jesus Christ is your tomorrow. He's your guarantee of that which will be. He's your resurrection and life. And when the sun has burnt itself out and the stars have been folded up like a garment, God will still be. For God dwells in everlasting now that nothing can get to. And he takes his children who believe in his son into his bosom, into the heart of the everlasting now. Everlasting. God is our hope in that. He is our dwelling place for all generations. I don't know if any of you remember the old hymn, Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past. It's a great hymn that articulates a lot of this theology. I was just looking back over that one yesterday. Listen to some of the verses of that old hymn. O oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. And that's just what we were just reading in the Psalms. He's our dwelling place through all generations. <clears throat> Verse 2 of the, that old hymn. Under the shadow of your throne, your saints have dwelt secure. Sufficient is your arm alone, and our defense is sure. Friends, the fact that God is outside of time, this is our defense, our, our security. That God is not bound to be like, oh no, I've run out of time to help you, sorry. God is up in heaven, he's bigger than time. He's not bound by time, he is our defense. He's the one who can provide all things for us. Verse 3, before the hills in order stood, or earth received its frame, from everlasting you are God to endless years, the same. Before he made creation, he was God, and to endless years he will still be the same. A thousand ages in your sight are like an evening gone. Short as the watch that ends the night before the rising sun. Time like an ever-rolling stream soon bears us all away. We fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. Our God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Still be our guard while troubles last in our eternal home. It's incredible when you think about these songs that articulate the very things we're talking about. So with all that in mind, I've got some things I want to think about tonight. About God being outside of time. So here's some questions we break up into our discussion groups here in just a minute. Number one, how can thinking about the attribute of God's eternality help strengthen our faith? I know this is kind of hard to get our minds around on this, but as we're thinking about God does not have succession of moments, that God is outside of time, not bound to it, that he has no beginning and no end, how can that strengthen our faith? How does that help us believe in him? How does that help us in our daily experience with him? Number two, I want us to go back and read Psalm 94 and 2 Peter 3, 8 again. These are, these are already there on your handouts on page... I think it's page two already there for you. Um, but so read those again. 
And how does the truth of these verses affect how we view our trials? If a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day to God, how does that help give you hope and encouragement when you're facing a trial and life's not going quite like you want it to go? Then I want you to reread Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 through 10. That was the passage, again, previously provided for you back on uh, page 4 for you there at the bottom of it. This is the one where God is saying he's declared the end from the beginning. How does that truth help you pray? How does that truth give you hope? Because when I read that Isaiah 46 passage, that gives me a lot of hope to press on in prayer. How does that particular passage give you hope and encouragement as you go to the Lord in prayer? Now, these questions I'm, I've just taken straight from Wayne Grude and Systematic Theology because they're great. I want you to think about these. This goes back to, again, if God experiences all time equally vividly, if he sees all things with equal vividness, that means if you sin against God today, when would that start bringing sorrow to God's heart? If God sees all time equally vividly, when did God first experience the pain of looking at his child that he redeemed sinning against him? When did that first bring pain to his heart and sorrow to his heart? Number two, when would it stop bringing sorrow to God's heart? And number three, does this reflection help you understand why God's character requires that he punish sin? You want y'all to wrestle with those in your small group. Number, the next question, number five. So this goes back again to God being outside of time and seeing all time equally vividly. I mentioned earlier that 3,000 years ago, God was already enjoying the praise you're going to sing to him this Sunday because he sees all time equally vividly. So when you praise God, will that sound ever stop being present in God's consciousness and in something in which he delights? So tie that in with Zephaniah 3. We talked about last week that God delights and, sing, and sings over his people. When you praise God, will that sound ever stop being present in God's consciousness and something in which he delights? How does that thought affect how you approach the worship of God, both at church and in your daily life? If God sees all time equally vividly, how does that affect how you worship God, not just here corporately, but daily life? And then this is the, God's eternality. God being outside of time is an incommunicable attribute. God doesn't share it with us. But from this, how does this, number six, how does this attribute of God's eternality help us make wise choices about our use of time now? When we look at this attribute of God, how can that impact our choice of how we use time now as people who are bound by time? Make sense? Let's divide up into some groups tonight. So let's see. So I see Dave back there, Ira up here. I see Greg right over there. I think is that going to – and who else? Oh, and Steve back there. Let's, let's, get, let's get those four groups going. I think that will be good for this evening. So you all split up in those groups. If you have any questions about these, let me know, and I'll float around and answer any questions you may have.